10,000 feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. Three oars rip right. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, and our feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing feminist art, commodification of feminism, feminist entrepreneurship, which is another word that is difficult for me to say, uh, and so much more with an amazing guest, uh, Emerald Palat. And we are so excited to bring you this interview. She was amazing and we can't wait for you to all hear it. But first, Melody... Where can our listeners find us on the Internet? Such an excellent question, Rachel. And I would like to respond by saying in select places. (laughs) You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast application. You can gain extra FKJ points if you leave us a review under the iTunes application. On the social meds tip, you can follow us on the Gram, Twitter, and Facebook. We have a Facebook page that you can just like, and then you can get episode updates. If you'd like to join our closed community group, search for Feminist Killjoys Community dash WTF Power exclamation point on Facebook. And then on the FI, we have the Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape curated by the one and only Rachel. And if you have some extra dollars and want to support feminist media makers, you can donate to our Patreon via a mini monthly micro donation, or you can do a one-time thing at our website, which is feministkilljoyspodcast.com. Remember, Patreon subscribers do get access to our newsletter, also curated by the one and only Rachel. And the newsletter is titled aptly, The Killjoy Review. And then always, you can email us your love and hate mail at fkj.phd at gmail.com. How's it going, Rachel? It is going very well, actually. Some of our listeners know and you know that my partner uh, threw me a surprise party this past weekend, uh, actually on Thursday, and it was a surprise party to rebrand my impending unemployment and to celebrate that I will no longer be at a school that wasn't really that good to me for four years. I was pretty darn good to it, and it was mediocre in response to me. And uh, so it was it was really, really amazing. We We went out for like a date night, and when we came home, my home was full of pretty much every single one of my closest Boston friends, like every almost everybody was there. And it was really amazing and special. And not only that, but he solicited like letters and pictures from out of town friends, including you, you sent me a really adorable like flipbook message thing. It was really precious. It was incredibly touching and incredibly moving. And we had a fire pit where I burned things about my former job that I didn't like. It was really special. Although I drank a little too much champagne, I had a very good time and it was it was lovely. And then we went to Portland, Maine. So it was like, it was just like this really beautiful weekend. And it's all thanks to Logan because he knew that this was, you know, it was as, as you listeners have heard me talk about for like two months of how sort of sad and struggling I've been with this whole thing. It was awesome. And it was also graduation weekend at that school. And I decided not to go and instead, you know, have this kind of like nice little just quick overnight getaway. We brought the dog, stayed at uh, an expensive little Airbnb. It was really nice. How about you? I'm also doing fairly well. Pretty, Actually, pretty good. Yeah. It's the first week after school is out, which is always a hard one for me because transitioning out of being a very productive working 
goodness, I don't know how many hours a week to basically working no hours a week is very jolting for me. And so I often have a hard time transitioning, but I've been encouraging myself to enjoy the time and to not get down on myself if I just zone out and sit on my phone for an hour. That's okay. (laughs) I Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. am productive other ways throughout my day. So it's been great. My week has been pretty amazing, such as I found a free couch on the south side of Minneapolis Mm. and while I was babysitting a baby. So that was doubly awesome. And then... If you follow me on the gram, I had a picture of myself with said baby, and we were testing out this said free couch. And so now I'm going to bring it into my house, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be in our book room where just all the books are. And I have this like vision of me just lounging and like reading books like an intellectual and drinking coffee. So we'll see if that comes true. And also on the furniture tip, I bought my cats a new window seat like it just suctions to the to the window and it's this new kind of like is very like norwegian design so Mm -hmm. we'll see if they like it because sometimes you buy them 40 dollar things and then they could care less and then you're like why did i just spend 40 (laughs) dollars when they just sit in a box right (laughs) yeah it's it's so so cat it is (laughs) that's so cat like what is it that's so raven yes right (laughs) hashtag that's so cat and you're coming to Boston this week, which is very exciting, mm-hmm. which we've talked about. So we're stoked about that. Again, get at us if you want to hang out, if you're in the Boston area. So before we get into our interview, we did want to bring back our accountability corner. And we're still looking for a jingle, a little theme song for the accountability corner. So you musicians out there, get at us. Accountability um, corner. That sounds more like a Menards commercial. It does. That's the problem. So we're not quite there. But our accountability corner is when we get messages from you all that say maybe we weren't super perfect on one of our episodes or something we said or something we posted, getting really called in, really, if we want to bring back our the episode we talked about last week. So um, we've gotten some, and sometimes we get called out, which is also fine, but I, I would say the past couple of weeks we've had some call-ins. We have two we want to talk about, but I think we'll just, we'll save one for next week. So I do want to let the listener who left really a, a really nice review there under the name, get me a soda, please. That person, whoever you are, uh, thank you for that review. We, we want to address the sort of end of your review next week. But first, we do want to talk about an email we, we received about our episode on anarchism, where we talked about radical feminism versus um, being a feminist radical. In general, a lot of the critique is focused on us sort of not nuancing things enough, which is interesting because that's, I think, sort of one of the things that I think we think we're good at because we're academics and that's what we do so often. But we do sometimes make very sweeping generalizations and statements. And so we want to be accountable for that, that sometimes the picture is not so black and white. And sometimes we make it seem like that. So um, we've been engaging with this person who's in email. So, so you know, we, we unpacked it a little bit more specifically there. But apologies and accountability for that. And also I would add that I am... I think I even identified as a Van Jones hyperbolic person. I also make sweeping general. I know I do. And it's really for rhetorical effect so that people like pay attention. I think it's part of my teaching thing, too. I'm very aware that I make sweeping generalizations. I think Rachel is better at at cleaning up my statements. And I really do try to make nuanced comments as much as possible. Sometimes it's hard when we're doing comparisons between like different types of feminism and different types of vegan hummus. 
uh, or whatever, <laughs> that I will just make generalizations so people can understand the basic separation. And I think what we're seeing here with some of these comments that are super helpful is that we have a wide audience in terms of diversity of educational levels. And that's not that that is not a slam on anybody who has different levels of education. I'm just saying some people know the ins and outs of every form of feminism and have read hundreds of pages on feminist theory. Yes, obviously, you will have some critiques about the way that we are generalizing some of these feminist movements. But for people who are still, and we have lots of listeners who are in the space that are still learning about the different types of feminism, who are younger, who didn't necessarily grow up with some of these waves of feminism, we're trying to just give you a look into what some of these feminisms look like. Obviously, this is a starting point. This is like the Wikipedia page, not the thing that you quote for a research paper. I know Rachel and I have talked a lot about how do we speak to a diversity of viewers, especially along education lines. And so this is something that we knew that would happen, that we're not going to speak to everybody all the time. But to those who have a lot of education in some of these areas, just know that you're privy to things that a lot of listeners aren't. And therefore, we might be speaking underneath your knowledge at, at a certain points. But know that we do have those nuances with us. We're just trying to simplify things. I do just want to clarify that education doesn't have to mean like degree holding. It can mean you know, it, meaning just knowledge about yes. from wherever you got that knowledge. Yes. It doesn't mean you went to grad school. We hear this. We hear your feedback. We're, we're going to respond to it when, when we can and think we need to as best we can. I'd love us to just get straight to the interview. Yes. And, and uh, listeners, I would have a notepad out so you can take notes on all of the like gems of knowledge that she shoots out because it's amazing. Her, I feel like our interview is like one big quote that could be commodified and sold. <laughs> Wait, that's coincidentally not what I meant. But <laughs> given the subject matter, but you know what I mean, Rachel? Like, I don't yeah. know how to describe what she was doing, but... She just would say these things that could just be some, magnets or yeah. things you see on Pinterest and things like that. Yes, yeah, super fucking smart and amazing. And we just love talking to her so much. So who is she? Let me give you her, her quick bio and then we will uh, jump right into her interview. So Emerald Pilat is a full-time writer by day and a self-taught illustrator by night. Residing in Harlem, New York, Emerald created Girl Trouble, no vowels, as a visual conversation with the current political and social landscape. Always inclusive, intersectional, and feminist, Girl Trouble is the voice of kitschy, crass, pop culture-obsessed Afro-Latinx. And that's Emerald, and you're going to hear so much more about that. We'll tell you where to find her online. She's so amazing. Let's take it to the interview, Mel. All right, Emerald, thank you so much again for uh, joining us. Uh, like I said, when I first saw your Instagram, I just loved it immediately. I loved the sort of feminist aesthetic and just the aesthetic in general. And so I would love to just know more about how Girl Trouble started and the how and the why. Well, I started Girl Trouble as a direct response to the election. The election season was pretty bad for all of 2016. It was pretty emotionally exhausting and heartbreaking and just awful. I mean, you all know. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of <laughs> channeling my my anger on Facebook, which was not very productive, you know, just posting articles and making passive aggressive comments toward people. And I'm a writer by trade and I just felt as though words were not an effective way of discussing the current political climate anymore. 
because of fake news and alternative facts and meme culture, you show someone a well-articulated, well-thought-out, well-researched article with links to substantiate its claims, and everyone's just like, no, that's a conspiracy because it doesn't perfectly align with my worldview. And as a writer, that's kind of disheartening because words are how we communicate for the most part. It's how we get our messages across, but no one trusts that anymore. And I had always sort of used Photoshop and digital art as a hobby since I was a teenager, but... After we got the sexual assaulter in chief, I was so <laughs> furious, so, so angry that I just started drawing. I started drawing again and my images were reflecting how I was feeling politically. And I had never really used visual art that way. It was always just like, oh, I'm going to make a banner for my blog. You know, it was never anything that felt especially meaningful. But um, the solidarity enamel pin that I made, which is just of these three women's fists with this very long red nail and each fist is a different skin tone. It was the first image that really came to me and really spoke to me about this sort of intersectional feminist fantasy that I have about women really coming together and putting aside these petty grievances we have with each other and really seeking understanding and really uniting to resist what's happening. And I think we're posturing towards that in feminism now more than ever, but I think we still have a really long way to go. And so for me, girl trouble was really just a coping mechanism. And I, I have no experience running a small business, never thought I would be running a small business, never thought I would be a visual artist. But this has been the only thing that has given me any sense of hope and happiness and when people say art saved my life, I'm like, yeah, whatever. But I really feel like art did save my life in this instance. And the response has been amazing. Like you guys have reached out to me. People have reached out to me to donate my art for to raise money for Planned Parenthood and the ACLU and things like that. So my messages are being clearly communicated. And you can't really argue with these images because it's just like, you know, I'm a feminist, you know, I'm an intersectional feminist, you know, you know who I didn't vote for. <laughs> you can't argue with that. So whether you agree with me or not, or believe in the things that I believe in, there's no room for argument or conspiracy. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is where I stand. And that's what girl trouble is. It's just me <laughs> pretty much. I love that. That's amazing. And um, yeah, I think so. We were just talking recently on an episode about coping and all the different ways that people are coping and I think uh, art can be a really powerful way to do that and uh, I found myself turning to more creative expressions that I hadn't been tapping into prior to the, the election for a similar reason and I love what you're saying about words and Melody and I as academics really value words that we read and teach and write and I think it's so true we live in such a visual culture that you know, people aren't going to click on an article that has a headline that they disagree with, but they can't not see the image when they're scrolling on their Instagram or, or whatever else. So that's rad. As you were talking, I was also thinking about how these more symbolic gestures have been critiqued as well. So I was thinking about the safety pin, which is obviously not your jam at all, but how at the same time, when people go forward and use symbols, then the response is, well, that that's what you're going to do. Like that is that really a form of activism to be wearing a pin? Shouldn't we be writing more about this and talking more about it? So what's your what's your response to that critique? 
Well, I think it is valid. Like for me, drawing a picture isn't going to be enough to satisfy my need to participate in a resistance movement, right? I need to be doing other things within within reason, obviously, because whether that's like voting or volunteering or writing letters to my local representatives, there needs to be more than just a safety pin. I think if you're using, even if it's one of my enamel pins, you know, as a way of saying I'm a feminist and then that's it, then then that then it is just symbolic. It is completely meaningless unless you sort of act after that. It's great to say, oh, I'm a feminist, but feminism isn't something that you can buy or really commodify. It's a way of thinking and a way of being that you have to demonstrate in all of your decision-making and choices. And so I understand why people think that um, safety pins and cool protest signs might minimize the effects of, of the movement. But I think when something, and, and I don't mean the safety pin, I think that was like odd, <laughs> but <laughs> I think <laughs> if an image is succinct and concise and can sort of capture the spirit or the sentiment of something, then that does confront people and force them to engage with the movement. So like for me, the pussy hats are real uggo to me. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a big fan. I would never wear one. But if you see a group of women wearing these pussy hats, you want to know what they're doing and what that means. And depending on who those women are, you know, they might have very good answers and very good actions behind those answers. Or they might just be like, I just wanted a pink hat. <laughs> so, so I think it depends on who's engaging with the symbols, because ultimately that's going to determine what they mean. And so I think the fact that with the safety pin, when, when people were like, is this really enough? And the responses were so defensive and like, you say you want our help, but then you just get mad when we try and do something nice. And it's just <laughs> like, well, then you're not on our side if you can't even have a conversation with us. Totally. And so it always depends on on who the individual is, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, totally. I feel so similarly about those those pussy hats, which actually, and I think you said a lot of other good stuff too that I would love to revisit, but that just specifically made me think about how much I love like the sort of hyper feminine sort of unapologetic femininity that you have in your work. I identify as like high femme and I love like the war paint lipstick pin. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit more, like your relationship between femininity and feminism, particularly since there are some people that either A, are not feminists and think that feminists are like Bar, bra burning, man hating, et cetera, et cetera, people who hate makeup, or B, you know, some of the feminists who actually do not like hyper femininity. Yeah, I mean, that's difficult because we have to sort of think about the origin of these things and like what they mean and who decides what they are. But I think we're in such a postmodern referential world that like these things are ultimately what you decide them to be for you mm -hmm. and so I would never really get mad at anyone for choosing to express themselves and their identity in a certain way even if they're using things that may have been traditionally used to oppress women because I think as long as you like women can wear makeup as long as they know that makeup is a byproduct of society saying women have to look a certain way and valuing women based solely on their looks like, you have to know that in order to use makeup for you and to empower you. And so 
I understand the critique of that. It's like with plastic surgery where where you want to respect people's choices, but no one ever gets a nose job to get a bigger nose. You know, it's always about a specific European standard of having a tiny, dainty, you know, ski jump nose. But we're, we're born in capitalism. And my feeling with that is that it's kind of all, it's kind of all icky in a little bit of a way, but you're born into playing the game with someone else's deck and you're sort of forced to navigate that world. And at the end of the day, for me, it's like, I'm me. I'm the one who has to wake up every day and live this life. So I'm going to do the things that make me happy. And if makeup is one of those things, then fucking so be it. With that being said, I think you have to pay attention to what sort of makeup organizations and companies you're supporting within that framework. But I think with my work, I try not to think too hard about it because that's the only way it'll be authentic. Like, I love the color pink. It's my favorite color. (laughs) And that's associated with traditional femininity. And I like soft things, even though I consider myself to be sort of an abrasive I'm from the Bronx. I'm from New York City. I live in Harlem. I'm, I consider myself to be someone with a lot of grit, too. And I guess I just don't give a shit. <laughs> it's, what trying, it's what I'm struggling to say. Um, to me, my art is going to represent me and the things that I like and the things that I love. And I don't necessarily intentionally try and infuse them with femininity to be more appealing to, to a certain kind of woman. I don't necessarily do it to go against the grain of what a feminist is or who a feminist ought to be. I just do it because I like it and it's a true and authentic expression of myself. I do understand that the images that I create are sending a very specific kind of message. I'm not like utterly oblivious to that. (laughs) I think that's an amazing answer. I was feeling lots of feelings while you were talking because I just feel so similarly about makeup and my own sort of performance of femininity and I love what you said about, like, at the end of the day, you have to wake up and get through this world. And I also think that it's not even like you're saying, well, if I'm wearing makeup, I'm subjecting myself to the patriarchy and the male gaze, because I think so many of us wear makeup in ways that are, like, directly in opposition to that, because, you know, you'll, you know, whatever men on Facebook will be like, why do women wear dark lipstick and high-waisted shorts? Like, oh, it's so ugly. (laughs) Well, this is not for you. It's not, it's not why I'm doing this. So, yeah, I just, I, a lot of what you just said resonated with me. And also, yeah, I I think the idea of, first of all, not giving a fuck because this is your art and your work. And also, I don't remember the other thing, but I just loved a lot of what you said. So that was great. Go ahead. Rachel, were you going to maybe ask her about, well, one thing that I, what stuck out from Emerald Dancer was understanding the context of makeup when you wear it. Because I think a lot of people like me who are, I'm not high femme. And so I will push back against some of that stuff. But I think on my side of the argument, there is sometimes this assumption that we're not giving feminists the agency to understand what this makeup means and that like you're moving forward with wearing makeup and high heels, understanding what the the context of that is living within a patriarchy. Like, like, like you're not dupes. Totally. I mean, I agree. I, does that make sense, Emerald? Like it's like a lot of society is like, if women are doing this, it's because... Yeah. It's like, you know, the bullshit madmen argument. Women get dressed up. And then other women see it because they want to be desirable to men. And that's how you sell ads or whatever bullshit was in that show. Um, (laughs) The the ultimate goal is always to be desirable to men, which I think no matter what, we can't escape being brainwashed by that a little bit. But I think I'm pretty fucking smart and (laughs) self-aware. I don't really 
get dressed in the morning thinking, how many boys are going to hit on me today? I just put on the things that I like and that I gravitate toward too. I mean, I think there's probably some underlying marketing (laughs) and like other influences about the things that we do like. I love the color pink. And I wonder if that's because everything is pink now and I'm just seeing pink so often that I'm like, I love this color. Well, maybe I've just been overexposed and psychologically primed to it because there's so much marketing and there's a whole new millennial pink thing. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, am I just a sucker? Am I just a dupe? I don't think there's any real way to know who you are outside of like the context of, of where you are and what you are and what you do every day. You can't. There's really no real way to objectively know that. You just have to constantly be thinking about it. I do think some women do get dressed and want to look hot for men. Is there something inherently wrong with that? I don't necessarily know. If that's what your goal is tonight, <laughs> then maybe right. that's okay. You know, that's the only way that you're, you're determining your self-worth, then that's extremely problematic. If you're doing it because and you don't like it and you feel uncomfortable, then that's a big issue. But ultimately, if you find it gratifying, then and you're aware of that context, then what then what is the problem? Other than people are telling you that it is a problem, but you're saying, no, it's not. I'm fine. And so I think feminists need to do a better job of listening to each other. And if you expect if you are demanding that men trust women when they say something, then we need to trust each other when we say something too, right? And that also really links up a lot to another reason we really wanted to have you on because we've uh, had a lot of sort of discussion with each other and also some of our listeners uh, chimed in about this, about uh, we've seen this sort of uptick in feminist products in terms of like shirts that say feminist names and bags that say feminist or girl power or whatever whatever sort of phrases on there and that was like a 90s throwback I guess to Spice Girls but there's still some girl power things floating around so we you know we've had we've talked a lot about uh, and then there was also this article that I think I, I sent you that was circulating about like all these feminist entrepreneurial women who are trying to make quote-unquote feminist companies but then actually treat their workers really badly um, and things like that. So I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit to, since you you even mentioned the commodification of feminism, so, you know, knowing that you you think through those things, you know, what was it like to navigate those questions about capitalism and consumerism and then starting a small business um, and maybe also speak to, since it's, it's not, it's not like you had an MBA and we're like, I'm going to figure out how to like make money off of. So just if you could just speak to that in general. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting for me because I'm so, I so don't like American capitalism. I think it will always inherently been be unequal and create inequalities because our country was founded on the oppression of so many different groups of people. And so even now in having a small business from my bedroom, it still feels a little... I still feel a little icky about it, to be quite frank. And I don't really know how you sell feminism because I don't necessarily think it should be something that should be sold. But when I see like a feminist tote bag at Forever 21, I'm like, ugh, I know what you're doing. You're, you're exploiting a trend. You're selling counterculture back to the people. That's my first gut reaction. My second reaction is, well, is that necessarily bad? There's more people knowing about feminism. There's more people identifying as feminists. There's Beyonce declaring that she's a feminist and making this thing 
this movement, this ideology cool, does that really hurt feminism? And I think you have to ask who owns it and who's selling it to you. Like, for example, the the little girl by the bull on Wall Street, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that nonsense, Mm -hmm. you know, by Mm -hmm. this ad agency where a few, very few women work. I mean, like, that's, that's not feminism. That's marketing. Right. That's saying I'm going to align myself with these values because I want those people's money. You know, Um, that's not saying I truly believe in these ideas and principles. And so I I find it all very troubling, even for myself. It's like I could create all of these images and never, ever mention feminism and they would still mean exactly the same things. But I'm saying, hey, feminist, I know you're out there. Don't you want to support a feminist? (laughs) Support this feminist. Pay for my coffee. And I'm not necessarily, (laughs) I didn't create this business saying, oh, feminism's popular. I'm going to capitalize on this and make money off of it. That was never my intention. But, you know, every time I have to, make an Instagram post and think of something to say <laughs> and say, you know, click the link in the bio to buy this little pin. It just, it just feels odd to me, but I am a feminist truly. <laughs> and so everything that I create and everything I do is the result of me thinking with this framework and this ideology. And so I don't know, I find it, I find it really interesting, like the whole nasty girl and thanks controversies. I follow those very closely and I don't necessarily know, like, and I even read Sophia Amorosa's, I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce her name correctly. Um, I read her book, Girl Boss as well. And she doesn't particularly strike me as someone who is a feminist as she appeared to be someone who was sort of opportunistic mm-hmm. and sort of just like, I hate everything kind of angsty teen. But then as soon as she saw that she could profit off of marketing that sort of identity, she just was like, capitalism's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I do find that kind of shady. I do find it interesting, the media coverage of these women who own these companies, because I don't believe that male bosses treat their employees any better. Totally. But yeah, we're holding like women. I mean, we should be holding everyone to these standards because they're just human rights. (laughs) But I think it's more salacious and more juicy when a woman fucks over other women as opposed to a man fucking over (laughs) other women. And I think that kind of salaciousness and and coverage is is not feminist (laughs) I don't know it's it's hard because I look at Beyonce and I don't necessarily agree with her brand of feminism but I don't necessarily hate on it either because I think when you're a woman and especially one of color and you've been marginalized and economically disenfranchised and your fate in this society is almost is so deeply rigged against you and to reclaim that economic power, like she says, best revenge is your paper. That is something powerful. But ultimately, I don't necessarily know that if women become CEOs and bosses, if they're just reproducing the shitty conditions of capitalism. Because just because you're the boss now doesn't mean that you're a good boss. And when we have so few sort of role models of women in leadership, or so many examples of people, who, so few examples of people who do things a better way, even in America, 
it's just like when we're shouting girl power and we're getting that paper and like, are we really only benefiting ourselves? And I think often the answer is kind of yes. <laughs> like, I don't necessarily know of any companies that are actually living and demonstrating those values because I think capitalism kind of forces you to be a shitty person. <laughs> so I don't know. Amen. <laughs> Once again, I feel like all the things that you say could be turned into like quote posters. Totally. You know, like you, you're saying like all these amazing things that like, I was like, that could just be a shirt or not. Yeah. Oh wait, that's very capitalistic for me to say, but like seriously, like there's all these We like, can totally create like a quote of you on Canva for our Instagram posts. Like that is, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. But I would say one of your first points I think is a really good takeaway in terms of like who owns the company and who's selling it and why are they selling it? Because feminists like to buy stuff too. And we are probably more like conscientious consumers. But if I want to get like a nice pin to wear to school, you know, like as my form of jewelry, for example, like I, I like having the option of supporting women and people of color instead of having to go to the regular old target or whatever that's led by white men. So it's nice to have these options because while we still live in a capitalistic system it's beneficial to have a feminist option right because like we still we still buy things and I think about that a lot of times with my veganism if I want to get some makeup I know that there's like vegan products that I can purchase so it's it's just nice to have that option and at the same time if people have disposable income it's nice to be able to spend that money. So I got Rachel a fancy pin in Portland from this company called Wild Fang, Wild Fang, oh, yeah. Wild Fang, Wild Fang in Portland. And a lot of the stuff was like super expensive, but it felt good to get Rachel a gift and know that I'm supporting that kind of company rather than just like getting her a gift from God knows where. I don't know. I just wanted to remind people that feminists buy things and that we live in a capitalistic <laughs> system. So it's good to have feminist products. And that's much different than like Pepsi exploiting protest culture to sell a damn <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah. right. sugary soda that causes all sorts of health complications. I digress. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, and I'm selling like enamel pins and postcards. It's not like, it's pretty self-explanatory. I don't really have to manipulate you that much into buying it. <laughs> Either you like it or you don't. <laughs> so, I mean, with certain things, it's fine. With other things, it's questionable. With things like soda and things that are ultimately harmful. And like Forever 21, probably, I'm pretty sure doesn't have like good working conditions <laughs> for their employees, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, do research. <laughs> yeah, totally. We actually have a friend who knows very well that they don't have good working conditions. She sort of, like, works there undercover. We might have her on as a guest. Anyway, yes. And they also have been reported for, like, stealing artists' designs and, like, mastering oh, yeah. them without credit, which is just so gross. Something else I wanted to note, though, aside from the facts, like, the sort of feminist consumer part of it, which, yeah, is kind of inevitable under capitalism, is also, I've been thinking a lot differently about entrepreneurialism um, for a lot of reasons, but one is because I, I have a colleague who is writing a book about feminist entrepreneurialism in the 60s and 70s through now, and talks a lot about it in terms of the fact that marginalized people sometimes don't have the option to, you know, in the 60s and 70s, she was talking about like women of color not being hired into jobs that would get them in sort of like middle class status. So they would start businesses to 
try to make money in places they couldn't be hired. And she's talking about how um, today she's, you know, researches sort of like trans women of color entrepreneurialism when, you know, there's so much job discrimination against POC, but, you know, particularly these trans women of color she's studying. And so really thinking about entrepreneurialism, you know, as a form of seizing the means of production, as Marx would say, like you're taking ownership, <laughs> um, you're you're doing that. And, and it goes back to that idea of we all have to survive under the system. And so if you can find a way to do that. And also we live in a culture that you kind of need a fucking side hustle. Like jobs don't pay us enough to live if we live in cities where rent is the way that it is and all of those things. So if you can find a side hustle and produce art that is meaningful and political, I think that's rad. And yeah, and, it, and, and my thoughts have really changed because I think I used to be really grossed out by like, I think I thought of entrepreneurialism as like rich kids, whose parents fund them to start apps or whatever. Um, And it's just different now because so many people have to find ways to make it work. And it's especially cool if you can find a way to side hustle that is meaningful. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, I would agree. Like, it definitely has been empowering for me to do this. I think specifically because my work is so feminist is that there's been a creation, like the byproduct of it has been a a stronger sense of community because people have asked me to sell at feminist events. I, I vended like literally my first date selling ever online and in real life was spent at the Women of Color for Progress event in New York. And they sort of help women get elected and teach people about, teach women of color about local government. It's this amazing organization. And other organizations like it and other people sort of interested in doing things at a grassroots level have sort of reached out to me, which is not something that I ever expected would happen as a byproduct of starting a small business. And so I think, like I was saying before, it really comes down to how you're going to navigate it and what you're going to do with the the little bit of economic power that I have and the little bit of economic power that you get from, from selling something, you know, like half of not necessarily half, but a good deal of what I do, I donate to other places to raise money for Planned Parenthood and the ACLU and other organizations. And that's been a really cool thing that I didn't necessarily even plan for. I was very anti-starting my own business because it just seemed like, it seemed like power corrupts, but I think this operation is pretty low-key enough that I'm not going to be a monster just yet. <laughs> I think the uh, donation stuff is cool, and that just reminded me of Melody and I also navigating that, uh, asking for money for the podcast. I mean, we have a Patreon, and I was thinking when you were talking about putting links on your Instagram, like, I felt like it does, it feels it feels icky, but, you know, we're also trying to, uh, we've talked about using our, we each, like, sponsor people on Patreon separately, but we were like, well, we could use our, like, our Patreon account to fund other Patreons and like what, you know, how to, how to use what this extra stuff that we're getting for good. And so that's, it's awesome. And just so evident when you have actual marginalized people or feminist people or whatever the case may be behind a business that that really dramatically changes how that business impacts the the world. Um, Because Obviously, there can be a lot of harm that businesses do, but there can also be a lot of good in under capitalism. So, yeah, thank you for expanding on that more. Those are kind of the bigger questions we we wanted to unpack with you. And again, just so grateful for your for your time and thought on all that. We also just had a couple other sort of quicker questions that, well, I don't know, maybe some of these will get 
have longer answers, but we were curious. Uh, first, if you've had any trolls, have you had any <laughs> men's rights activists or people that have been harassing you on the gram or anywhere else? Uh, on Instagram, I'll get a troll every so often. Like I use the hashtag kill all men. Oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's <laughs> Marsha Belsky, who that's her hashtag. And her brand of comedy is kill all men. And people get very upset at her, even though she's just being ironic, obviously, (laughs) because there isn't some great social issue where men are being killed, obviously. So her saying that doesn't cause men to be killed. So when I use that, people will comment and like, you say you're a feminist, but you want to kill all men? But I haven't had any serious harassers or anything like that. Okay, knock on wood. I don't want to jinx you. (laughs) Yeah. What is your favorite piece in your shop? that you've made? Oh, my favorite piece is the enamel pin and it's like a compact mirror and it has a reflection of a girl who is probably me and it says, don't tell me to smile. And that's my favorite pin because, well, I made it. A. (laughs) B. I love the colors. It's like pastel blue and pink. And don't tell me to smile is the name of my memoir. (laughs) I hate the fucking resting bitch face thing. I hate that that even became a thing amongst feminists. Like, it's your fucking face. It's a face. Shut the fuck up. Like, you don't need to come up with some quirky little excuse. No, it's my resting bitch face. Like, no, it's you without an expression because you're a human being and you can't be performing femininity and smiling all the goddamn time. And so (laughs) that is my favorite pen for those reasons because I'm often, as a black woman, told that I'm angry and hostile and blah, blah, blah which I've never given a fuck about. Um, I'm, I perfectly know how I'm feeling at every moment because I'm me. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's my favorite pin. It's cute and it's hostile. <laughs> and please tell the listeners what you refer to the pin name as, like what it's sold as. Uh, it's called the resting boss face. <laughs> Love it. What? <laughs> I, I was like, this is the thing I've needed for all this time because <laughs> People say that to me about my face because I do have like when I'm my face is resting, I look like I'm deep in thought, which people then seem see that as me being angry. I was given that people were like, that's what you have. You have the resting bitch face. And I was like, yeah, except they don't. And so I wish I would have known this term because then I would have thrown that back at them. So thank you for changing my life in that way. Much appreciated. And lastly, I guess we just want to know where people can find you. So tell us uh, where people can follow you on social media, where your website is. And we were talking about your art, but it sounds like, is is your memoir published? Are you working on a memoir? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, oh, that was just like your hypothetical, like if I had a memoir. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Coming soon. Coming soon. (laughs) CBA. My website is girltrouble.com, but I spell it without all the vowels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's G-R-L-T-R-B-L.com. Same on Instagram, except there's an underscore between girl and trouble. I hope that makes sense. (laughs) Totally. And we'll link to it on all of our things as well. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything, any other last words you want to share with our listeners? Thank you for having me on. This was an awesome discussion. Absolutely. We're so grateful for your time. Cool. Indeed. Thank you for coming on to our show. And please, everybody, buy her pins. She's not a 
business person per se. So she won't. <laughs> I'm really bad at promoting myself too. So I just let other people do it for me. The pins are beautiful. The postcards are beautiful. They're amazing. They're awesome. We're definitely going to get some for this podcast. Cause I was like, it was funny because when I was in Portland, I was like, Rachel, I'm going to get some postcards for us. So then, you know, when people donate, I like to send people mail and I couldn't find any, which kind of bummed me out. Cause I was in Portland, you know, but like, these were the postcards that I wished existed. And now here they are for my so, yeah, we're gonna buy pleasure. Some. If it's okay awesome. with you, they're going to be part of our FKJ. Thank you. Thank you notes. So that would be amazing. Yeah. Thank I you. mean, right, Rachel, they're yeah, like, so they're perfect. perfect. They're like, they're perfect. You're, yeah. It's amazing. And yeah. I also love the like subtle. So you'll see when you go to her, to uh, Emerald's website that there is like a pink pussy hat, but she changed it and she added language to it. And it's like knowing that you're not a fan of it of the original hats, like <laughs> makes that just such a com complex piece of art. And I just much appreciate that. Everybody go buy something from her. It is well worth your dollars. If, if you are in, if you do have disposable income, right. We would highly, highly suggest it. Absolutely. That was amazing. I'm sure you all loved that. Like we did. Thanks again, Emeralds. We're just, so grateful that you took time to hang with us and talk to us. Before we close out the show, we want to, as always, do our, our, <laughs> that's Owl. a tongue twister, our RWL, <laughs> what we are reading, watching, and listening to. Melody, would you like to start? Okay. What am I reading? What am I reading? What am I reading? I don't know if I'm reading anything. There's a lot of pressure to always be reading something, Rachel. Um, 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 um. <laughs> I can um, go. Um, I found something. Um, um, um. Um, um, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. So reading the same couple of books that I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, I'm reading, I read an essay in the New Yorker that our friend of the podcast Ming Wei posted, and it's called mm. The Personal Essay Boom is Over. The New and Yorker. And it's about... I'm just making fun yeah, of you. Yeah, ooh, who's fancy? Sorry, I'm sorry. You're very, <laughs> um, I should not be doing this to you right no, now. No, it's all... I just was, every time it's the New I'm like, ooh, it's the New Yorker, I'm just reading... <laughs> from a magazine that costs twelve dollars. It's very <laughs> sorry. I'm done. I'm done. I got it for free online. So I'm done. There's that. Okay, go ahead. All right. It's an it's this article by Gia Tolentino about how the the personal essay boom is over, and she's talking about these very like vulnerable first person essays that were very popular for a long time and, and still are maybe to an extent, but not as much. And it's very much sort of, I think about how this style is very feminized. Um, I don't know. It was interesting, uh, partly because I'm kind of drawn to those first person vulnerable essays. And I think it's also wrapped up in the idea that like, I'm a huge fan of memoir as people who have been listening for a while know and plan to write one and am writing one. And that memoirs get shit on so much because it's like feminized and vulnerable, feminine and vulnerable and largely women are the ones who write these things. Um, so I think this 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 piece in the New Yorker is talking about a similar sort of phenomenon. And so I was interested in that in that article. Uh, watching over on our vacay, we decided to um, turn in early and watch Dawson's Creek on our on our laptop. I don't even remember why. I, maybe because we were in a New England boat town that, that makes sense. I had Dawson's Creek on the brain. So I was like, we should totally just start rewatching it. And it is bananas how like much they jump into right away. I remember it being sort of celebrated because it had one of the first gay teenagers on, you know, long before Glee, Dawson's Creek had a gay teenager. But the very, like the pilot includes 
like stuff about class because Joey is poor and her sister is I don't know if they're even married, but she's impregnated by her black boyfriend or partner or husband. Um, so there's also a black character. They talk about sex. The very first episode, they have the affair between Pacey and his teacher like comes up the first episode. It's, it's like a lot of stuff. And um, so anyway, it was interesting to go back and watch that the first few episodes and listening to podcasts the podcast on the road this weekend two dope queens the show that we went to in boston we listened to that which was fun i couldn't find my laugh in the crowd though which was a bummer what about you was dawson's creek a controversial show when it was on air oh yeah i think so okay the gay the gay thing was real controversial and i'm sure the teacher student thing was i just yeah it's Hmm. yeah i don't know because he's 15 years old in the show and she's supposed to be like pushing 40 right so anyway Hmm. so i am reading i'm doing some mini research on i will pause trigger warning mention of suicide shows 13 reasons why which we've never talked about on the show for obvious reasons but unpause i was at a i did a mental health first aid certification program on a few days ago. It was like a full day where you basically get trained to be a first responder to mental health crises, which I wanted to be trained in because of my work with students. And we got into this conversation about 13 Reasons Why. I don't want to say anything about the show, but what what I've been reading and trying to find more information on is actually the difference in regulations that the FCC puts on cable and network TV and how Netflix is outside of those regulations and how the FCC doesn't have anything explicit about how to cover um, topics of mental health and death related to mental health issues. But at the same time, reporters are very much they they have a very clear ethical guideline list about covering Uh, news stories about about these things. And so I've just been kind of doing some research. So if any media scholars are out there and have some good gems of pieces about the lack of regulation on Netflix and how for a very long time we've been celebrating it as a good thing because shows that really push boundaries in a lot of progressive ways have come out. And I think that's a really great thing. There's now this show that has exemplified how the lack of regulation can be very troubling. And so I was just kind of doing some nerdy media ownership reading. That's interesting. You're going to try to make that an article? Um, No, I just, uh, I guess when people have been talking about it, definitely in the, in the mental health field, as I was like listening to these mental health experts talk, they didn't have any knowledge about the media ownership angle or like media regulation. Right. And when I shared that with them, they're like, oh my God, that's fascinating. And so I said, yeah, I mean, you're going to, once you're moving forward now and you might be wanting to set up some standards for TV shows, just know that Netflix is under a very different umbrella than a cable or network show. And, you know, in terms of First Amendment rights that, you know, you can't you can't constrain any TV show, but you can find them afterwards. But the fines, Netflix will never get fined for something, whereas like CBS will get fined if they break the FCC's rules on decent programming. So it was just it was kind of cool to like flex my media knowledge and kind of bring some context to it. So I'm just more interested in terms of a conversation between the mental health field and the media field on like, 
it's very rare that the two actually interconnect. But when I was talking to these people, and I'm sorry, I should mention it's NAMI. That was the organization that I was getting my training through. They say that every day they have this conversation about this show. And so I wanted to just like kind of lend some of my media knowledge to to them. So more activisty, as always, just like article. I mean, maybe, maybe for a pop culture thing, but I've just been thinking like, why write academic articles when five people read them? Yeah. I mean, I hear that. (laughs) So anyways, (laughs) that was a long R. Watching, I'm watching the new music video with Francis and the Lights and Chance the Rapper. There's a new dance. Oh, okay. So of course, the last week when I was like, I'm learning, I have to relearn the dance for Friends, the one with Bon Iver and Francis. Now, Francis has to come out with another video with another dance with Chance the Rapper. Yep. Have you seen this video? I did. I posted it with your name tagged. Right. That's how I know it. about it. No, that's how I know about it. Yeah. The way that you responded, <laughs> you're like, it seemed like you didn't know what I was talking about. So I'm just. I know because for like a random second, I was like, oh, Francis and the Machine and Chance the Rapper. That's why I was like, oh, there's another new video? I didn't say Francis um, and the Machine. I just said Francis. You you said Francis and the Lights. You said it per- perfectly correct. I was envisioning the long-haired Francis Welch and Chance the Rapper collaborating, and I was very confused. And then, like, a second later, Got I was it. like, oh, she's talking about the video that I literally sent her and watched and loved. So, yes. <laughs> Perfect. So I'm watching that. I also watched... <laughs> I'm going to do two. I watched... Katy Perry's performance on SNL. Did you get to watch that yet? Not yet, but you said it was the gay. Okay, so we're just going to have to do a timeout on that, and we'll have to talk about it next week because I'm, like, super okay, great. interested in what you have to say, so it's not even worth me talking about because it's nothing without your input as well. So Ah, uh, shucks. Okay. Just, cool. Everybody we'll should just go week. watch it, and then so when we talk about it next week, you'll know what's going on. And then listening oh. to the links on the radio, boom, and we won. Nice. Because... Nice. It's annoying that I had to listen to it and not watch it, but because I got this, yeah. just don't even get me started. You, you're calorie deficient <laughs> right now, so I'm not going to go on my rant. It's true. <laughs> but I have lots of things to say about why and how they limit people from watching sports on TV All right. and the internet. I'll talk to you another about, time. I'll talk to you at another time so Rachel can go down her calorie packs. <laughs> AKA calories, eat dinner. Eat um, food. awesome well as always we uh thank hard copy cartel for their support of our podcast and wtf power bye bye in the ground we bury the seeds of a pen